Hello. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Exodus 17, verses 1 to 13. Chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah, for reading so well for us this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new here, my name is Z. I'm the pastor here at One Covenant Church. If I've not met you, I'd really love to get to know you and talk to you. Before I get started with the sermon, I just have a small announcement to make. Uh, in this church, we, you know, at the back of the bulletin, you'll see that we organized, uh, how we've organized ourselves into various ministries. And uh, two, there are two roles. One is an overseer who is one of the elders of the church, and the other is a ministry coordinator who helps to coordinate the ministry uh, for the Ministry of Worship, we've put together a core team. Uh, Yen, Wang Yen, served very well as our ministry coordinator for many years, but he is moving on to other interests. And so I'd just like to announce that Mark David Gill will be our new uh, ministry coordinator for worship. Uh, if, yeah, you can clap. It's okay. Yeah. So please pray for David. You know, it's been so exciting to work for him, uh, for him work with him, and to see how God has developed uh, the worship ministry. Join me in a word of prayer as we seek his help to understand his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much that this is your word, your true and living word. We pray that as it is explained this morning and applied to our hearts, that you would draw near to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Also, the passage that was read was from Exodus 17, but we're covering a whole chunk from Exodus 15.22 to 18.27. And this is Israel's journey from the Red Sea to, the, to Sinai, where they receive the law of God. Have you ever heard of the term mission drift, my friends? Mission drift is a term that's used often to describe what happens to an organization, perhaps a nonprofit or a company, that moves away or drifts from its original mission or purpose for which it was started. 
Now, this can happen to organizations, uh, churches, and even individuals. Now, in some sense, mission drift can be a good thing. It can be intentional. Perhaps an organization decides to change its mission and vision because of the change in the particular culture. Well, that's more a mission shift than a mission drift. Most of the time when we hear about mission drift, it's about an organization or a group of people that lose their way, that lose their original meaning and purpose in life. Uh, this week I participated in a church panel, in a panel on church planting, and one of the pastors there said this, Chris Chia from ARPC, some churches set out to be fishers of men, but they end up becoming aquarium for fishes. Right? We set out being fishers of men, but we end up becoming an aquarium for fishes, just gazing at one another, appreciating the things uh, that God has done among us, but not really going out to bring the nations in. Well, friends, if you look at Exodus 15, 22 to 18, 27, you see that there are various accounts that seem very disparate. Right? You have three accounts of grumbling in Exodus 15 to 17, uh, you have a battle with the Amalekites in Exodus 17, and then you have a family reunion with Moses' father-in-law Jethro, where he teaches uh, Moses basically to delegate responsibilities. And we tend to think that these are disparate and different and unrelated episodes in the book of Exodus. But truly, as you meditate more deeply on the Word of God, the theme that binds together these chapters as Israel travels from, from the Red Sea to Sinai is the theme of mission drift. They're losing the plot, but God in His grace helps them regain the plot. They're drifting from their original mission and purpose in life, but God in His grace brings them back to their original mission and purpose. Now friends, maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling a bit lost in your life. You're feeling that you're not exactly to moving towards what you were made for, your mission and your purpose. And maybe God, in His grace, would speak to you through His Word this morning. And just as He restored the Israelites to their original mission and purpose, He would do the same for you. So let's look at this passage in three parts. Grumbling, grace, and governance. Grumbling, grace, and governance. Friends, Exodus 15, 23, and 24 tells us that the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. There are actually three different episodes of grumbling in Exodus 15 to 17. Now, if you look at Exodus 15 to 17, Israel grumbled against God and against his servants for two broad reasons. Not very sophisticated. They grumbled against God because they were thirsty and they were hungry. There was no food and there was no water, and so they grumbled against God. There was no deep philosophical disagreement with the sovereignty of God and God's governance of their lives. No, it was the basic necessities of life that made them grumble against God. Look at Exodus 15, verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter, and the people grumbled against Moses. Friends, they had just come from the Red Sea, where God, by His grace and power, had torn apart the Red Sea. They had seen water on the left and on the right, and they arrived at Marah, and the water was not drinkable because it was bitter, and they grumbled against Moses. Very quickly, they forgot the great miracle of God in delivering them from Egypt. Come with me now to Exodus 17, verse 3. It says, The people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They grumbled against God because 
They were thirsty because there was no water to drink in the first and the third episode. They grumbled against God. Overnight, they had forgotten all that they experienced in Egypt, all the hardship and all the great deliverance of God through the exodus and through the crossing of the Red Sea. Why? Because they had no water to drink. They were also hungry. Look at Exodus 16 verse 2. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the people said to them, Word that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, nothing very sophisticated. They were thirsty and they were hungry, so they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and they grumbled against God. Did you notice that they said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt? Friends, do you see how forgetful the people of Israel are? The hand of the Lord had delivered them from Egypt and the hardships of Egypt. But here they were accusing God. God, you should just have killed us in Egypt rather than brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us out here by hunger and thirst. They were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but in their hearts, they were truly grumbling against God because Moses and Aaron were God's representative. They grumbled because they were thirsty. They grumbled because they were hungry. They grumbled, and in their grumbling, very quickly, they forgot the miracle of the Passover meal, and they forgot the miracle of the Red Sea crossing. Nothing very sophisticated here, friends. Just your basic necessities of life. Hunger and thirst, feeling a lack in this area, made them forget what they were called to and who they were. Friends, you know what's at the heart of grumbling? At the heart of grumbling is a heart of unbelief. At the heart of grumbling is a heart that doesn't really trust that God is good and that God cares for them. They had seen the miracles in Egypt and the miracles of the Red Sea crossing, but because no water, no food to eat, God, you should have killed us in Egypt. At the heart of grumbling is a heart of unbelief. And at the heart of unbelief is a heart that says, God, you're not really good. God, you don't really care for us. Now, we may turn up our noses. We look at Israel and say, oh my goodness, how forgetful these people are. How terrible. I, yo, I really don't like people who complain. I really don't like people who grumble. And then the more we talk that way, the more we realize we are just like them. Last week, you may have sang of the unfailing love of God on Sunday morning. You may have heard of God's sovereignty. You may even have been reduced to tears as you hear of God's faithfulness. And then in the evening, you start grumbling about how life sucks. You start thinking about Monday morning, and you start thinking about all the things that you lack in life. Just a few hours ago, you heard of His unfailing love. You experienced it on your heart. But a few hours later, we're grumbling. Why, friends? Because at the heart of grumbling is a heart of unbelief. And at the heart of unbelief is a heart that does not truly believe that God is good and that God cares for us. In other words, friends, our grumbling actually reveals who we truly worship. 
what we truly trust, who our true God is. If you look at Exodus 15:25 and 16, verse 4, it tells us that one of the reasons why God withheld drink and food from them was to test them. Now, this is not a test to fail them on. This is a test to reveal the condition of their hearts. Will they continue trusting the God who had delivered them out of Egypt and the Red Sea crossing in the wilderness? And they failed the test. What was revealed in their hearts was not a consistent and persistent trust in God, but a heart that was so quick to abandon God when the basic necessities of life did not seem to be met on their terms. Friends, if you really want to know what you trust in in life, who your true God is, trace the grumblings of your heart. Think about the things that you are fretful about and discontented about in life. It may not be food and drink. It may be something else in your life. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a relationship in your life or a lack of a relationship in your life. Trace the places where your heart grumbles, is fretful and discontented, and there you will find your true God. No, friends, your true God is not found on the songs that you sing on Sunday morning. Your true God is where you grumble on Monday morning. That's why in Philippians 3.19, when the Apostle Paul talks about those who had turned away from Christ, he says this of them, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Friends, it's very possible that when we get anxious about the basic necessities of life, good as they may be, needful as they may be, we lose our focus and our vision and purpose in life. We forget God and we forget His goodness. Trace the grumblings of your heart, what makes you discontented, what makes you complain, and there you will find your true God. There you will find your true God. Now, friends, God would have been perfectly just to punish Israel in the wilderness. They were so unreasonable in their behavior. Overnight, they had forgotten his goodness. He would have been just and perfectly justified if he had destroyed them in the wilderness. But instead of doing that, the passage shows us that God shows grace to the people of Israel. Look at Exodus 15, 25. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. The water was bitter, but God, by a mighty miracle, turns the bitter water into sweet and drinkable water. He didn't have to do that, but he does it because he's gracious to Israel. Look at Exodus 16, verse 4. God says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Sure enough, verse 13 tells us that God sends quail in the morning so that they have meat to eat. In the morning, verse 14, there appeared a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. In verse 15, the bread that the Lord has given you to eat, verse 31, they called it manna, meaning what is this? What was it like? Verse 31 tells us it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers, 
made with honey. Friends, the manna here was delicious and it was abundant and it was graciously provided by the hand of God to a people that deserved to be judged for their ungrateful hearts. God shows grace instead of judgment to a people who are ungrateful for all the blessings in their lives. Now we can go home and say, wow, their hearts were changed. They obeyed the Lord because they tasted of His grace. But that's not what the text says. Even after tasting the grace of God, they continued to disobey God. Look at Exodus 16 verse 19. God says to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. Collect just enough manna for the day. Don't keep too much reserves. Just have enough for the day. That was a direct instruction from God. Collect what you need for the day. I will provide for you every day. But verse 20, they didn't trust God. They did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, but it bred worms and stank. Manna would not keep for more than a day. They disobeyed God, even though God had shown them great grace. Now, in verse 22, Moses tells them to collect twice as much on the sixth day. Why? Because the seventh day is a Sabbath day unto the Lord. On the seventh day, they were to rest. God wanted his people to rest on the seventh day. So he tells Moses to tell the people on the sixth day, collect twice as much. It will not rot. But on the seventh day, don't do any work. Stay at home and rest and worship me, God is saying. But what did they do? Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out. They broke the Sabbath, but they found none. They disobeyed God, even though God had shown them grace after grace after grace, grace did not change their hearts, my friends. They continued to disobey God. Verse 28, God says, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Friends, even an encounter with grace was not enough to turn their hearts away from disobedience to love and obedience to God. God was gracious, but grace in and of itself here wasn't enough to turn their hearts to God. Why, friends? You see, friends, they didn't just need to see grace. They needed to see that this grace was costly grace, that it cost something for them to be able to receive the grace of God. We see that in Exodus 17. They grumble against God again. There's no water. This time, God says to Moses in Exodus 17, verse 5 and 6, Take the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. How does God provide water? By getting Moses to pick up the staff that he used to strike the Nile and turn it to blood and to strike this rock. And out of this rock will come water that the people can drink. Now, friends, this is not a mere act for fun. This is a picture of judgment. 
The striking of the rock is a picture of God judging. The rock is struck instead of Israel. They should be struck for disobeying God and grumbling in the wilderness, but instead, this rock is struck so that they can drink living water rather than the cup of judgment. Now, how do we know that? Well, it's the staff in his hand. What was the staff for? This is the same staff that Moses had used to strike the Nile in Exodus 7, turning it to blood. A picture of God's judgment on the Egyptians. It's the same staff in Exodus 17 that he lifted up to divide the Red Sea, and he lifted up again so that the Red Sea would come down on the Egyptians in judgment. Now, friends, come with me to Exodus 7, verse 8 to 16. There we have an episode where there is an unprovoked attack by the Amalekites on God's people. Now, Joshua leads the battle, but look at verse 9. How did they win the battle? The battle was won because Moses went up on a hill with the staff of God in his hand. And verse 11 tells us when he lifted up the staff, the people prevailed. When he got tired, his arms had to be supported by her and Aaron. But whenever the staff of God was lifted up, they prevailed. And verse 13 says, Joshua overwhelmed the Amalekites. Why, friends? Because God was judging the Amalekites for the unprovoked attack on his people. And what was the symbol of this judgment? The staff of God being lifted up. That is the staff that God said to use on the rock. Strike the rock and they will drink. Strike the rock instead of Israel. Strike the rock so that they can drink living water rather than the cup of my judgment. They had to see that grace cost something. Grace doesn't come cheap. Grace isn't just letting you off the hook. Someone has to bear the cost of letting you off the hook. Something or someone needs to be struck by God's judgment in order for you to receive grace. So friends, grace in and of itself does not change your heart. Costly grace, that changes your heart. Knowing how much it costs God to give you grace, that changes your heart. That's why many of you have heard grace messages, but nothing changes in your life. You're not moved to obedience. You're not moved to devotion. You're not moved to worship because you think grace is just God saying, Tida apa, doesn't matter. I'll just let you go. No, friends. Grace is God bearing the cost of your disobedience, something else being struck so that you can go free. And that is what you need, friends, for your heart to change. Not just grace, but costly grace. And we see in Exodus 18 a beautiful picture of costly grace at work. In Exodus 18, we see God restoring Israel to its original purpose. Let's look at governance. 
In Exodus 18, we have a reunion between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, who is Jethro? Verse 1 says, he's the priest of Midian. He wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't an Israelite. In fact, he was a religious leader of a pagan people, the Midianites. But he was Moses' father-in-law. Now, verse 8 says, Moses told his father-in-law all that God had done and how God had delivered them. But verse 9 says, and verse 9 says, Jethro rejoiced. Don't miss this detail, friends. The priest of Midian, a non-Israelite, rejoiced in the things that God had done for Israel. Look at verse 10. He blessed the Lord. Look at verse 11. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And in verse 12, he offers a burnt offering and sacrifice to God and Aaron and the elders come and eat with him before God. You see, friends, in those days, eating was a sign of acceptance, a sign of hospitality. It was a sign. Jethro, you are now one of us. What's happening here, friends? Well, Jethro was experiencing the grace of God. Jethro was being converted from false gods the true, to the true and living God, and he was now being embraced by the elders of Israel as one of their own. He was becoming one with Israel. And friends, this is Israel's mission and purpose. Israel's mission and purpose is that the nations may know the true and living God and become one with his people. Israel's mission and purpose is that they may, the nations may know the true and living God and that the nations may become one with them. My friends, that's your mission and purpose and that's our mission and purpose as God's people. That the world may know the true and living God and his son Jesus Christ and that the world may become one with the people of God, the church. That is the vision and mission that God had given to Israel. That is the vision and mission that God gives to us that we squander so easily by the basic necessities of life. Now, do you notice in this passage that Jethro blesses them with his inclusion among God's people? In Exodus 16, God's people refused to obey God with regard to the manna and to the Sabbath. Now, was it good for them? No. They were stuck with stinking manna in their kitchens, and their lives were disordered. They could not rest as God intended them to rest. There was disorder in their lives because they did not submit to God's good and gracious will and ways in his life. They could not rest. Now, friends, even Moses was affected. Do you notice that both in Exodus 17 and 18, it tells us that Moses grew weary or he grew tired. In Exodus 17, 11 to 12, as he was holding up the staff of God, it says he grew weary, he grew tired. And so he had to be helped by two of the elders of Israel, Aaron and Hur, lifting up his arms so that he could continue doing the work of God. In Exodus 18, come with me to verse 14. The people of Israel 
were coming to Moses one by one from morning to evening. So I just want you to imagine that. You have Moses, the leader of Israel, sitting there. Israel, one by one, coming to see him for consultation from morning to evening. Now, what were they doing? Well, verse 15 and 16 tells us they were inquiring of God. They wanted to obey God. They were settling disputes according to the statutes of God and his laws. So that was a good thing. Israel wanted to obey God, and they needed Moses to counsel them, to judge them, to give them the statutes of God and his laws. They were his personal counselor and judge. Not only was he the leader of Israel, he was their own personal counselor and judge. That was a good thing that they wanted to obey God, but this was an unsustainable arrangement. Jethro looks at it and he says in verse 18, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. Now, he didn't just say, Moses, you'll wear yourself out. He says, the people, you will wear yourselves out too. Why? Well, because Moses, you spend morning to evening talking to one person after another. At the end of the day, you're going to die. But the people waiting in line to see you from morning to evening, they will wear themselves out too. Jethro, the former priest of Midian, who had now become included among God's people, looks at that with eyes of wisdom and says, hey, this is not sustainable. It's not sustainable for you, Moses, and it's not sustainable for the people. You will wear yourselves out. And what does Jethro do? He takes his experience as the priest of Midian, and he applies it to Moses. Look at verse 19. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. In other words, Moses, be a priest. Talk to God about the people and for the people. And then in verse 20, you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Be a teacher. Be a prophet. Talk to the people about God. So Moses, this is what you do. As a priest, come to God and talk to God about your people. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Moses, as a prophet, this is what you must do. You must teach your people the statutes and the laws and tell them how they must walk before God. Be a priest and be a prophet. But then, he says in verse 21, delegate the counseling and the judging. Look at verse 21. Look for men who are able, who fear God, who are trustworthy, and who hate a bribe. Look for trustworthy men, Moses, and do this. Place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens. And let them, not you, Moses, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. Do you notice even in the battle with the Amalekites, Moses, although he was God's servant, lifting up the staff, he could not do it alone. He needed Aaron and her. He needed to be assisted by the elders of Israel. And right here, this becomes formalized by the wisdom of a man who was previously the priest 
of Midian. Do you see how the inclusion of Jethro blesses him, but it also blesses the people of God? Do you notice in verse 19, Jethro says, God be with you. In verse 23, God will direct you. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that the wisdom that I bring to you as someone who has been redeemed and changed by God, God is using to speak to you and to direct you. Jethro was being to Moses the voice of God, the wisdom of God. And that's why verses 24 to 26 tells us that Moses does what Jethro tells them. And from this order, there was order. From chaos, there was order. And Moses and the people would not wear themselves out. Friends, we kind of think sometimes order is, you know, very stodgy and, and, and restrictive. But order actually frees you to rest. And God brings order to Israel through a priest of Midian who was converted and was included among Israel. Do you see that, friends? When the nations of the world join with the people of God, they are enriched by the faith of Israel, by the faith of the people of God. They are saved. But at the same time, the people of God are enriched by the gifts that the people of the world bring with them into the body of the church. That too, friends, is a vision and mission that God has given to the people. The nations will believe and will join. Their lives will be enriched by the life of the people of God, but the nations themselves will bring their talents and their gifts and enrich the life of the people of God, and together they will serve and worship the true and living God. Friends, if you're a non-Christian here, can I say this to you? God wants you to be one of his people. God wants you to believe in him and join with his people. But more than that, friends, God doesn't obliterate who you are. He redeems who you are, and he takes who you are, and he enriches the life of other people through the gifts and callings and talents that he has already given you. In other words, friends, grace doesn't obliterate nature. Grace restores nature. It redeems nature. And that too, friends, is our call as God's people. This is our mission and our purpose, that the world may know the true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That as they join us, their lives would be enriched with the life of the people of God. And they, in turn, would enrich the life of the people of God. And we squander these things, friends, by grumbling. No icon there. Very hot there. Sing too long there. Sermon too short there. Okay, that one usually not, not such a complaint. We squander these things by the grumblings of our heart. You squander it. I definitely squander it. With the grumblings and discontentment 
in our hearts. But there is a way back. There's a way of restoration and renewal of our vision and our purpose. And it's not just a sea grace. It's a sea. Costly grace. See, friends, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Paul the Apostle looks back in history. He sees the striking of the rock, and he says they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was, say it with me, Christ. Do you see what he's saying here? In Exodus 17, verse 5 and 6, when God tells Moses, strike the rock, the rock gets judged in the place of the people of God. That was a picture of Christ. When Jesus came, he was struck. The rock of Christ was struck and was judged in the place of the grumbling people of God, of you and of me. Friends, Jesus the rock was struck in our place so that we, we could drink the water of eternal life, life rather than the cup of God's wrath. That's the grace you need to set your eyes on. It's not cheap grace, friends. It's costly grace. It's grace that costs God his very own son. It's grace that was willing to give itself up for you and for your salvation. And that's why Jesus can say in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Food, drink, career, love, relationships, comfort, those are good things, friends. But they can never satisfy the hunger of your heart and your soul. And they can make you squander God's great and grand purpose for your life and for our life together. No, friends, the one who can truly satisfy even our hunger and our thirst is Jesus. His body was broken for us. His blood flowed for us so that we will never go hungry and never go thirsty in our souls for all eternity. And if that is what Jesus has done for us, if he has done the difficult thing, to give us eternal sustenance, surely, friends, surely we can trust him for the easier thing to sustain us in our lives. Believe, friends, in Jesus and keep believing. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you and we confess to you how easily we grumble we experience your deliverance, we experience your love one moment, and the next moment we're grumbling and discontented and not trusting that you are good and you are kind and you will guide us and you will lead us and you will provide for us. And we ask you, Lord, to forgive us. We thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven us in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we set our gaze, not just on grace, but on costly grace, I pray now, Father, that your spirit will come and melt our hearts again. 
melt our hearts so that we fall in love with Jesus and his church all over again. Melt our hearts and our lives so that we would be molded according to the statutes and commandments and law of God, which is good. Which is good not because it saves us, but because it shapes us into the kind of people that bring you joy. And Father, help us, Lord, as a people, as individuals and as a church, never to forget what you have called us to do. You have called us, Father, to be a light to the nations, that the nations may know the true and living God and his Son, Jesus Christ, and that the nations may come and join with the people of God, be enriched by the people of God, and enrich the people of God, and together worship the true and living God. Lord, this is our hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.